great singing again this morning. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and open to a couple of places in preparation for where we will um, be this morning in our message. The first is in Hebrews chapter 12, and the second is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 might want to have something there that marks those places. Uh, We'll be in that order, but we'll get to those in just a little bit. Um, If you're visiting this morning, we've been going through um, our understanding of what is the church, doctrine of the church, what the Bible says about the church, because we are a church, and we want to be faithful to what the Lord says in His Word about the church. And so we're about halfway through in this study, started back around the 1st of January, and we've been thinking systematically about what the New Testament says about about the church. And, of course, our goal in this is to, again, function as a church ought to. We want to see what the Scripture says about the, about the church and then how we can be a faithful church, how we align ourselves with what the Scripture says about the church, how we can live up to the standards set for us in the New Testament. So we've been in this. This is now week six. The first few weeks we were talking about the identity of the church, what the church actually is, the metaphors of the church, we give some brief definitions about what the New Testament says the church is and some key aspects of that. But the last couple of weeks, we've focused our attention more on the functioning of the church. What should the church be doing? How should the church be living? How should we be functioning as a church? And so the last two Sundays, we've thought in particular about church membership. And we've asked ourselves a series of questions about church membership like, what is a church member? How does one become a church member? Why is church membership so important? Why are we placing an emphasis on this? idea of church membership, and then how do the members live together as a church? What, is my, what are my responsibilities as a member? What does it mean to be a member? How do we function as church members? That's going to continue to be an, a recurring theme throughout the next few sermons on the church. And one of the things we're going to look at today is, even though we're not going to be focusing specifically on the topic of church membership, we're going to be thinking about an implication of church membership which is the accountability that we offer to one another in, in the life of the local church. How do we hold one another accountable? How do my brothers and sisters hold me accountable as a church member and even more as a, fundamentally as a Christian? That idea of what we call church discipline is fundamental to understanding the, what a church is and ought to be. It's fundamental to the health of a church. In fact, Church discipline, if that sounds unusual to you, there's probably a good reason why. Over the last 75 years or so, the idea, the practice of church discipline has fallen relatively out of use. It was actually quite common. You go back and look at uh, the records of the histories of the church and the records of churches uh, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, all different denominations were practicing church discipline as a part of its vital, healthy functioning of being a church. But that has fallen out of use for the most part for the last 75 years or so. And so I want to think about that carefully because I do think this is a vital aspect of church discipline. It's not that we're looking to discipline everyone and expel a bunch of people from the church, but it is something to be aware of and to think about when those cases do come that we need to do that. At least this is a foundational message we can point back to. It's something that we can think about in terms of our own accountability. How do I, how am I accountable? Who holds me accountable as a church member? How do I go about living out faithfully this Christian life that I have been called to? And so we're going to think more closely today about what church discipline is and why we must practice church discipline. 
Let's start with a definition. What is church discipline? Jonathan Lehman, in his book, Church Discipline, How the Church Protects the Name of Jesus, defines church discipline as the act of removing an individual from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's table. I'll read it again. Church discipline is the act of, an in, of removing an individual from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's table. By taking this action, he goes further to say that church discipline is the church's public statement that it can no longer affirm that person's profession of faith by calling him or her a Christian. Now, let me just take a step back for a moment, because when we tend, when we do think of church discipline, if that is a term you're familiar with, you think about, is, again, familiar to you, you've read about, we typically tend to think about church discipline as sort of that final step, right? The step of excommunicating a member from the church, putting a, a brother or sister outside the fellowship of the church. But really, church discipline is a lengthy process. And that act of excommunication, the act of expelling a member from the church, is really the final and ultimate step for an unrepentant person. And we'll talk more about what that is and what that looks like. Let me just read the words of Jesus. Jesus describes a, a process for us in Matthew chapter 18 that shows us that church discipline is not just simply a one-time act, but it is a process. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So again, when we think about church discipline, we tend to think about the last step. But Jesus here is emphasizing a process. And I want to underscore here that church discipline is a process. It's a process in which loving correction and persuasive pleas are made to an unrepentant member in hopes that they will repent of their sin and be restored into the fellowship of the church. So it's not just simply booting somebody out of the church, right? This is a process. Someone in the church, a member of the church has sinned. Someone who professes to be a Christian has sinned in a very public and scandalous way. And the church comes alongside of them because we've committed ourselves to one another as members of the church to hold them accountable to their profession of faith in Christ. Our hope is that they will repent, that they will return to living out their Christian commitment, their Christian calling within the fellowship of the church. That is the ultimate goal. Well, why do we practice church discipline? Why do we practice church discipline? Let's start by thinking about the relationship between a disciple and discipline. The relationship between discipleship and discipline. As you can see, and I probably have it on the... Yes, I did. I tried to highlight that as best I could. You can see there the same root is in both words. The word dis discipline or discipleship comes from the same root word meaning student, disciple, and instruction, discipline. Those two words go together because students receive instruction. Students, disciples, are meant to be taught. So when discipline is applied to a disciple, the discipline that is offered is a teaching tool. 
The student is being instructed by discipline so that he might have some more knowledge or some more character or some new skill, right? When you are teaching something, if you're a teacher, right, or you've done teaching in your job or, or in, in the church, whatever venue you may, you may have exercised this, you know that you're, you, there's a variety of means by which you try to communicate information to someone who is learning that, right? And so whatever it is you're teaching, you are using some kind of discipline in that process of teaching. Now, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he gave his disciples what we call the Great Commission. It comes from Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and of the Holy Spirit, doing what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we see that connection again, even here in this Great Commission, the heart of the church's mission to the world, how we honor God in the world. We see this connection between disciples and discipline, between students and instruction. What does Jesus mean by disciple here in the Great Commission? He refers to disciples or means that disciples are students or learners. And who are they to be learning from or learning about? They're to be learning from and about Jesus himself. Jesus intends to make us to be students of himself. Disciples are people who learn from Jesus. Jesus is our master teacher. And so he intends for us to learn from him, to learn about how we are to honor him, to learn about how we are to live in the kingdom of God that he has come to establish. His followers are necessarily instructed in this way. Living the Christian life is not intuitive. We don't just simply pick it up. If that were the case, then everyone would be Christians, right? Everyone would honor God. Everyone would be following Christ's commands and being disciples. But it's not intuitive. It has to be learned. We have to be taught. Being a disciple of Jesus is not merely intellectual, right? It encompasses the totality of our lives. So that Scripture says that we are to be imitators of Christ. We're to imitate Him in every way. So certainly we need to know things intellectually. There is some content to our learning. But Jesus' desire for us is that our lives reflect his life. Our learning involves every facet of our personhood. Every facet of trying to imitate Jesus in the way that he lived, in the way that he thought, in the way that he spoke. We are to imitate his attitudes and his character and his words and his conduct. In fact, God's purpose for us is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. Paul writes of this in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, it's God's destiny for us to imitate Christ. It's God's destiny for us to be conformed to his image, to reflect his image as his disciples. And what an incredible promise that is. That is a promise. What we see in Romans 8 and 29 is God's promise to us. This is something that God has determined to do in us and for us. And what he has committed himself to do in our lives by his grace. But it's also a mandate. It's not just a promise. God's going to do this, but it's also a mandate. This is not optional. We ought not to think of discipleship in terms of levels. 
right? There's varying class, classes of Christians, right? You have sort of some of this, this holy elite level of Christianity, right? The, the saints, right? Those that really got it. Those that really did it. And then there's maybe a, a level just below them. And then, and then poor old me, I'm down here at the very bottom, right? That's not what Christian discipleship looks like. It's not what it's meant to be. This promise that God has made for us, this mandate that God's given to us, is for all of us, every single one of us who believe in Christ, who are believing the gospel, who are striving to follow after him, ought to resemble, ought to embrace, ought to live out. This is the goal of our discipleship, all of us. It is, our, our discipleship really should be, the goal of our discipleship should be Christ-likeness or bust. And so our calling as disciples is to imitate Christ, to imitate His holiness, to imitate His love, to imitate His compassion, to imitate His righteousness, to imitate His goodness. Every aspect that we see about Jesus that is intended for us to imitate, we are to imitate. Now, that's pretty high level, isn't it? That can be a little overwhelming. That's a very daunting task because none of us is Jesus ourselves. We know what we are, right? We see the standard and there's a part of me that says, man, that's awesome. I really want to strive and achieve it. And there's part of me that looks at my own life and says, <laughs> I got a long way to go. That's quite a lofty standard. I'm, I feel like I'm really down here at sort of step number one. None of us comes close to imitating Christ's perfect moral character. None of us comes close to resembling His perfect holy behavior. None of us comes close to walking in the way of righteousness as He did. And yet, by the power of the Gospel, God has not called you to imitate Christ in your own strength or your own power or your own ability. Through the Gospel, by the presence of the Holy Spirit that He has given to us in our lives, we have a new heart. We have new desires. We have a new spirit. We have a new attitude. We have a new purpose. We have a new motivation to follow the pattern of Christ. The Holy Spirit is given to us to help us imitate Christ in all His fullness. So what God calls us to, He provides the resources for. And what He promises to us, He will accomplish in us. So how does God fulfill His promise to conform us to the image of Christ? It's through instruction. It's through teaching. It's through discipline. So God conforms us to the image of Christ. He makes us imitators of Christ. He makes us disciples of Christ by disciplining us, by instructing us through discipline, by correcting us through discipline, by teaching us through discipline. Of course, as we've seen, the kind of instruction that a teacher can use can come by various means, right? can be through a sermon. can be through a lecture. Okay? It can be through personal example. Hopefully my life is an example to others of how they ought to imitate Christ. It can be through sort of side-by-side side working together on, on some project or some skill. Yesterday I had a great, my boy, boys and I and Evie were out in the yard doing some work and Elijah and I were going around trimming up some trees. He was taking the, the bush um, clippers and trimming them up. And at one point I said, do you want to do this? And maybe he asked me to do it. And so I gave it to him. And so I was pointing out, okay, clip this one, clip this one, clip this And so we were side by side. And I don't know that my son's ever done that before. But it was an opportunity for me to teach him just in that moment of doing. 
how to clip the, the, the branches off the trees as they're growing or the shrubs or whatnot. Well, one way of communicating truth, one way of instructing is through corrective discipline. As parents, we correct our children by discipline, by corrective discipline. And God is no different. God instructs his children in a similar way, by corrective discipline. And we see that analogy made for us in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles open, let's look at that passage. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment of all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There's a lot to say from this passage. Let me just make four brief observations from just these verses. First, I want you to notice the context for God's discipline here in this passage. The context for God's discipline is the believer's struggle with sin, beginning in verse 4. At this point, the disciple of Jesus is not imitating Jesus. He is struggling with his sin, but he has not yet sufficiently labored over the sin so as to have victory over it. And so, because of that sinfulness, God the Father intervenes. Second observation is that God acts towards, his, towards the believer as a father. God acts toward the believer as a father. God disciplines his spiritual children just as a human father disciplines his children when he finds them misbehaving. God acts and applies discipline for the purpose of correction. So our sin is not what God would have us to do. It's, it's the wrong way. It's, it's, it's that which is in opposition to God and his plan for us. And so God applies discipline to correct us, to show us the error of our ways, and to bring us back to the right path. Discipline is a tool of instruction to teach the believer what is right. He points us back to the way of righteousness. For it is in that way that the fullness of life comes to us. Because as we imitate Christ, the blessings of God are, are released, are, are given to us, are manifested to us, so that we might enjoy them. A third observation is that the motivation for God's discipline is love. God disciplines the disciple because he loves him and wants to conform him to the image of Christ. God is not being uh, abusive. God is not being a strict father, right? God is not out to get revenge. God is not out to do harm to us. God disciplines those he loves. God's purpose is to conform us to the image of Christ, and therefore he disciplines us. If God did not discipline his own children, 
If God did not love his children, he would not discipline them, right? He would not care about their spiritual maturity. He would not care about his purposes for them. So God's motivation for disciplining us, for teaching us, for correcting us is ultimately love. And the fourth observation then is that the, dis- that the discipline to the disciple seems painful in the moment. We saw that in verse 11. In the moment, God's discipline seems very painful. And yet, we endure God's discipline and we learn from God's discipline so that we might receive, he says, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God's purposes are accomplished in us. We are made more and more holy. We are made more and more righteous. We are sanctified even more. And we receive the peaceful fruit of righteousness, he says. That is the desired end. And so we thank God for his discipline. We see his discipline as a sign of his love for us. We see his discipline as a sign of his commitment to fulfill his purposes in us, to conform us to the image of Christ. Well, uh, one means of God's discipline in our lives is church discipline. God can deal with us individually, but God also deals with us in the church setting. Church discipline is another means of God exercising his discipline in our lives. God established the church to be a reflection of his glory. Not just to us here in this room, not just to other Christians, but to the world. We are to be a display of God's glory to the world so that not only God is praised, but that others come to see the glory of God and come to respond to the glory of God by believing in Jesus Christ and being saved. So we are to be here a body that displays the glory of God. We exist to display the glory of God to the world. When, God died, when Christ died for sinners, he redeemed them and united them together to himself as one body. So, when we come to faith in Christ, we enter into a new family. This is kind of going back to those first few sermons, right? What the church is. We are a family of God's children whom he has woven together and integrated together as one body to be his people, sharing our faith together in Christ. Loving the gospel, celebrating the gospel, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the world might know Christ and be saved by him. We have together in this room the brotherhood, the sisterhood of fellow believers. And we share together that purpose of glorifying Christ to the nations. We all have the same faith. We have the same Lord. We have the same spirit. We have the same destiny. And God intends to use our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And we talked about that a lot more last week. One reason why we have a church, one reason why membership is important, is because our brothers and sisters help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. That's the essence of church membership. Even beyond just the one another's, right? We saw that last week, that God has given us the one another's, these various commands that we are to live out toward one another. The reason why we have the one another's is so that we can help one another and we can be helped by one another. Those, those one another commands are essential to help us mature and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one area where we desperately need one another is in this realm of church discipline. We need each other to hold us accountable. Now, for some of us, and for all of us, not just some of us, but for all of us, there are blind spots in our lives. 
There are things about our lives that we can't clearly see. And so God has given people to help us see those blind spots and help us take action so that we don't fall into the ditch of waywardness, so that we don't go off the beaten path and give ourselves over to various kinds of sins. We also are called to walk in righteousness after the manner of Jesus. And there are times when we will face temptation. There are times when we will struggle against the flesh. There are times when we will want to abandon our sanctification to leave the path of righteousness to go off into the weeds of sinfulness. And we need our brothers and sisters, again, to hold us accountable when they see us veering off the path to pull us back, to remind us of our commitment to Christ, to remind us of the gospel that has so saved us. The Bible calls us to help one another and to receive help from one another when we are imperiling ourselves. So in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who are more mature, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So here we have a case of a, of a brother who's been going astray, and Paul tells the Galatian church, you know, intervene. Those of you who are more mature, help to pull this wandering brother. Maybe he's wandering because of the burdens that are upon him. Go and help him with his burdens. Bear his burdens and bring him back to the walk of faithfulness that God desires from us. James also writes in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Again, this idea of wandering from the truth. What does wandering from the truth lead? Where does it lead? It leads to death. And we don't want any brother or sister to, to go off to death, to wander away to death. So what do we do? We intervene and we pull them back. We call them to account. We remind them of their commitment to Christ. We remind them of their profession of faith. We remind them of their previous walk in the hope that they will come back and avoid death and live in the fullness of life. So we should be concerned about others. We should be concerned about the progress of others in their righteousness. We should be concerned about how people are imitating Jesus. We should strive for the purity of God's church since we are to be a reflection of His glory to the world. So what happens when a brother or sister becomes a, a, an adulterer, serial adulterer maybe, or when he defrauds his company of thousands of dollars, or divides the church by his gossip, what do we do? We're to intervene. Because what does that behavior say about himself? What does that behavior say about God's people? What does that behavior say about the church? How can the church reflect the glory of God when there are members of the church, when there are people who profess faith in Christ who are living scandalously, who are sullying and obscuring the beautiful gospel that we say that we believe. When these kinds of things happen, it exposes a disconnect between a believer's profession of faith in Christ and his public actions. Because God is jealous for his glory, because God is jealous for the reputation of his church, he implements a process of discipline, church discipline, for disciplining his disciples. 
And that's why discipline is so important. It's one of God's means of grace to keep us faithful. Individually keep us faithful, but also keep His church faithful. Keep them from continuing to blaze a full and afresh the brightness of God's glory to the world. So as we think about church discipline, let's consider an example. Let's consider the case in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can turn there now. Look at what happens there in an actual case of what happens in the church at Corinth. Let's read the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's the whole chapter, 13 verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So we know, if you've read 1 Corinthians before, you know that Corinth was a dysfunctional church. I mean, they had all different kinds of problems. But 1 Corinthians is probably one of the darker problems that the church was experiencing. There was a public scandal that had broken out in the church. It plagued the church. There was a man who was living in an adulterous relationship with his stepmother. And that man was a member of the church at Corinth. That meant to be a part of that church meant that he had given public profession of his faith in Christ by baptism, if I'd been baptized, not probably, was baptized, and was integrated into the life of the church. He was a full-fledged member. He was participating in the life of the church and serving in the church and living out all of the one another's in the church. And so by being incorporated into the church... The church publicly affirmed his profession of faith in Christ. Remember we said last week or two weeks ago that in order to be a church member, you have to be a Christian. That's a non-negotiable thing. You, you cannot be a church member and not be a Christian. In order to be a church member, you must be a Christian. And one of the things that church membership does is it, is it celebrates and it affirms our profession of faith in Christ. We basically, when we bring new members into the church, we are saying, yes, we believe those people to be members based upon their profession of faith, based upon their baptism, based upon the integrity of their lives that we are able to, to see. And so that man had been confirmed as a member of the church. He was one of them. They had affirmed his profession of faith in Christ. And so the expected behavior from him 
should have given evidence to that profession. His life should have looked like as if he were a Christian. His life should have looked as if he did truly believe the gospel. But this man's life at the moment was reflecting just the opposite. His relationship was so scandalous that even the pagan the, the pagans would have declared this to be immoral. Do you see that in verse uh, verse one? It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. In other words, this isn't just a Christian standard. This is a pagan standard. You allow this man to be part of your church when he has done something so wrong, something that's so condemned even by the pagans. This is such an act that cannot even be tolerated among the pagans. Now, to make matters worse, they've done nothing about this. This man's sin was quite public. Everyone knew about it. The people in the church knew about it. He thought he's publicly disclosing this. In verse 2, he chastises them for not doing anything about it. He says, and are you arrogant? Ought you not to mourn, rather to mourn? Let him who has been done this be removed from among you. So there's this big scandal. Everyone knows it. The church has done nothing about it. It's quite public. They've let this man's sin go on. And by doing nothing, they gave their illicit consent to his sin. In violation of his own profession of faith in Christ. They were basically saying, it's okay. Nothing wrong with this. So Paul says that to allow him to continue in this pattern of behavior would lead to his own self-destruction and bring corruption to the church. And so Paul calls on the church, calls the church to action. He first, I think, calls them to remember their identity in Christ. He'll say later on in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. I love the past tense there. Such were some of you. This is not what you still are. This is what you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So he tells them essentially here, you need to remember that you've been changed by the gospel. You have a new identity. You have a new Lord. You have a new purpose. You have a new power. Remember who you are. Remember what God has called you to be. Remember your sanctification and walk in that. And then he calls them to confront this brother in sin. Now, typically, we would, uh, we would follow the process that Jesus gave in Matthew 18. We read earlier Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, where one person confronts a brother, and then if that doesn't uh, solve the problem, then that brother takes another with him. If that doesn't do it, then you take him to the church. And if the person doesn't listen to the church, then they are expelled. They are excommunicated from the congregation. But in this case, in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul advises the sudden dismissal of this man because this sin reveals the hardness of this man's heart and the lack of his repentance to change. Paul says, put that man out of the church. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In verse 13, he says, purge the evil person from among you. He is to be put out of the church immediately. Because his sin is so scandalous, his behavior does not match the conf- his confession. He is corrupting the church. The church can't exhibit the glory of God as it ought. 
because they're continuing to say this man is a Christian when obviously his life is not reflecting that. The church is not to associate with this man in any way that would make him feel confident that he is still a brother. Now, there's no way, as Paul says here in verses 9 through 13, there's no way to dissociate yourself completely from those who practice uh, uh, sexual immorality or, or uh, drunkards or revilers or all those different things. He lists swindlers, the greedy people. There's no way to totally divorce yourself from those people because, I mean, they're in the world, right? But for this man, this relationship, this man's relationship with the church must be different than it was before. They cannot treat him as a brother because they ought to have no confidence that Christ is in him. He's not acting as if Christ is in him. Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17 says that the excommunicated member should be treated like a Gentile or tax collector. And in the Jewish worldview, a Gentile or tax collector was outside the covenant community. So the adulterer in the Corinthian church should be considered as an outsider and treated as such. Now, again, I want us to consider here why Paul is saying this. What are Paul's motives? Well, Paul's motives for the church here is essentially purity. God, Paul desires purity for the church. The church is the guard. They're the guardians and the custodians of the gospel. They're the ones who are to protect this message that says that our sins are forgiven that there's a power to change lives, that we are now to walk in the way of Jesus, that we are sanctified, that we are to walk in the joy and the peace of Christ, that we have hope of eternal life, that there, are, that, that there, is, a, there is a message of good news for those who are living in brokenness, for those who are living in despair, for those whose, whose destiny is death. That's the message we proclaim, a message of hope, a message of redemption, a message of transformation. But Paul, and so Paul does not want that message to be sullied or obscured. He wants the gospel to shine brightly in Corinth. He wants people to see the power of the gospel so they might come to faith in Christ. And so Paul's motive for the church here is purity. Paul's motive for the sinner in this situation, for the adulterer, is love. This act of discipline is motivated by love for the man. This man needs to be discipled. By removing him from the church, he hopes that the man will learn what it means to be a Christian. That he'll feel the darkness and despair and death that exists apart from the body of Christ. He's hoping this man will repent of his sins and be restored to the church before the time of judgment. Did you see verse 5? You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul is hoping, ultimately here, that this man will be saved. That's the goal. The goal here of church discipline is not shaming, it's not vindictiveness, it's not manipulation, it's only love. The most loving thing that the church could do in this situation is to hand this man over to Satan so that he might ultimately be saved before the day of judgment comes. The most unloving thing that the church could do is to say nothing and do nothing, and let this man continue on living in this adulterous relationship, thinking that he was a Christian, only to find out on the Day of Judgment that he was not. Now again, is Paul happy about this? I don't think so. Discipline hurts. Discipline is painful. It hurts for this man. It hurts for Paul. It hurts for the church. 
But the reward is the peaceful fruit of righteousness that comes by this discipline. Now, the good news from this case study that we have in 1 Corinthians is that because of church discipline, this man repented of his sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, though Paul doesn't give all the details, we assume that it's referring to this case. He says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So this man had repented, and Paul now advises the church, that's the goal. By putting him out of the church, by expelling him, by handing him over to Satan, he repented. And Paul says, now forgive that man. Comfort him by bringing him back into the church. Reaffirm his profession of faith in Christ. Give him his place. Restore him to his place as a brother in Christ. So in this case, church discipline worked exactly as God intended. So how do we go about this process? How do we approach this from the perspective of our own church? Again, there's not anybody on the docket. We're not looking to start kicking people out of the church. This is one of those things that you got to talk about sometime. And it's better to talk about it when you don't need to do it than when you do, right? We may have to visit that at some point again. If we do have a case of church discipline, I'll probably have to preach a sermon on it to remind us of all these things. But we're not looking to, like, start kicking people out of the church. This is just something for us to remember that as part of a healthy functioning of a church, we need to be thinking about this and even more importantly, just holding one another accountable to our Christian commitment. So here's just some suggestions for how we can prepare ourselves for church discipline. Number one, take your own discipleship seriously. Take your own discipleship seriously. Following Jesus is not a sport. It's not a hobby. It's not a thing we do on the side or for fun. We have been called to learn Christ, to follow him and imitate him. So how are you doing in that? How are you doing in your discipleship? How are you doing in your following Jesus? Are you growing in righteousness? Does your life show evidence of maturity after the pattern of Christ? And again, we're not talking here about sinless perfection. We've been talking about this on Wednesday night, this idea of sanctification. That's a lifelong thing. That in one sense... We are sanctified. We are holy. That's what God says has happened because of Christ's death and resurrection for our sins. But it's also this thing that we continue to work on. It's a lifelong process. So there will be times that we'll have sin. Does not mean we're going to be kicking people out of the church. Does not mean that we're going to be kicking you out of the church if you somehow commit a sin, right? But there should be progress. We should be attentive to our discipleship. We should take it seriously. That it is not just simply an aspect of our life, but it is our life. And that we should devote ourselves to growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Number two, be willing to receive correction from another brother or sister in Christ. Be willing to receive correction from another brother or sister in Christ. A human being's natural response to correction is self-defense. When someone exposes to us some kind of weakness or issue in our lives, our natural response is self-defense. We are arrogant enough to believe that we are always right and everyone else is always wrong. Okay? But please be aware that we are 
sinful. We are finite. Our knowledge is limited. There are blind spots in our lives. There are times when we fall into a rut that we are no longer attentive to our sanctification. So understand that God has put Christians, other Christians in your life to help you see those blind spots, those sinful things maybe you are even unaware of more clearly. And that's an act of his grace. Understand that others love you enough to speak the truth into your life because they think the best about you, not because they're trying to tear you down. And have some humility. Receive a word of correction from a brother and sister and then pray about it. Don't let your first response be to defend yourself. One of the things I try to do is to say, let me pray about that. Let me think about that. Sometimes maybe it doesn't, you know, maybe they're misguided. But sometimes it may be a, a true word that the Lord has given to, spoken to someone to, to reveal to you so that you can walk in that truth, so that you can see your sin, so you can repent of your sin, and so that you can go about, by God's grace, pursuing righteousness. Number three, form deep relationships within the church. The church is a family. Because God has adopted us as his own children, our relationships with other other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ are to be closer than even our own biological relationships on earth. The church is more than a free association of willing individuals. We are a family. And therefore, we need one another. And so we need to cultivate relationships within the body, strong relationships, honest relationships, relationships that are close and tight, Relationships where we allow our brothers and sisters to speak truth into our lives. Relationships where our brothers and sisters can help us, can expose our weak spots, who can point us back to the way of righteousness. We need to build these close relationships where we will have the credibility to earn a hearing in another person's life, to speak truth to them, and to help point them back to the way of righteousness. So before you ever speak a word of correction to a fellow Christian, you need to ensure that you've laid down that foundation of love through that relationship. Number four, examine yourself before confronting another brother or sister in Christ. Examine yourself before confronting another brother or sister in Christ. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus here does not prohibit fraternal correction. He doesn't prohibit going and taking the speck out of the brother's eye. He just simply advises that we correct ourselves before we correct others. We take the log out of our own eye before we go and help take uh, help a brother take a speck out of his own eye, uh, out of his own eye. So examine yourself. Examine your own self, your own heart. Ask others to examine you. That would be novel. Hey, brother, do you see something in my life that maybe needs some correction? Do you see maybe an area where I'm straying? Do you see an area where I need to strengthen my faithfulness? Be sure that you are striving to walk with God in righteousness before seeking to correct a brother of his sin. Number five, seek the counsel of your elders. Seek the counsel of your elders. We need to keep the scriptures that we've read here today in the context of all of scripture, right? We don't need random Lone Ranger Christians policing the church. One area of oversight that God has given to elders is this aspect of straying sheep. Elders are tested with or tasked with caring for the sheep. 
in the fold. And if a sheep is wandering out of the pen, the elders should be consulted and their counsel sought. But sometimes elders have more information about a situation than maybe you do, and maybe they can wisely direct how to best approach that situation to bring back the erring brother back into the fold. And then number six, pray for the unrepentant. Pray for the unrepentant. The church should never take pride over practicing discipline. We should mourn and lament if, we, if ever a professed believer is excommunicated from the church. That's not something that we do with pleasure. That's not something that we should do lightly. But that grief that we would experience, the pain that we would experience, should never deter us from acting. A church disciplines its members for the same reason that a father disciplines his child and that God disciplines his people. And that is love. Love ought to be our primary motivation. We ought to so love a brother or sister that we are willing to put them out of the fellowship of the church and hand them over to Satan so that on the day of judgment we see them stand before the throne, not condemned, but fully saved in Christ. And for that very reason, then, we pray for the unrepentant. We pray that their hearts are convicted by the truth. We pray that they would be burdened about their sin. We pray that their their eyes would be opened and that they would return to Christ as they once did. We pray that they might be truly saved and profess a genuine faith in Christ that saves them eternally. Discipline in all its forms is ultimately born out of grace and born out of love. Discipline is God's grace to us. It is for our good. It serves His ultimate purpose which is to conform us to the image of Christ. So may God give us the wisdom to see the goodness of discipline. And may he apply it to us as we need it, so that we might apprehend the glorious promise that we would one day be truly imitators of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord for those things that we read immediately in our heart just rejoices and celebrates in that as we sang this morning about the mercy of Christ and the the wonders of the gospel and the love of God in our hearts that just really kind of works us up and get fills us up and gets us going but we're thankful also Lord for these harder passages of scripture as well uh, discipline's not something we want to think about certainly not something we want to experience and yet your word tells us Lord it is your grace to us that just as much as we receive grace and in trusting Christ and being saved and experiencing all of the, the blessings of what that means, that even your discipline is a grace to us because your purposes are accomplished in that discipline. I pray that you'd help your people here at Trinity to be a holy people, that we would strive for righteousness, that we would strive for faithfulness, Lord, and that our church would be a beacon of God's glory to the nations that others might see the testimony of Christ here and and see the, the goodness of the gospel and come to repentance and faith and join us in the glorious reality of what it means to follow Jesus. And yet, Lord, we also understand that there may be times we have to practice discipline. And so I pray you'd give us the love and the courage and the grace to do that. I pray, Lord, you would keep us from that. I pray that our, each of us, Lord, that are in this room would be attentive to our own discipleship that we would be continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would all be encouraging one another to continue on that path so that you might continue to accomplish your purposes in us. We are thankful, Lord, for your discipline. And we ask, Lord, that you would use it in our lives to accomplish your purposes. 
We love you, Lord. We love your word, and we're thankful for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.